Welcome to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a heart for God and a deep love for people. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. Let's look at Exodus chapter 20, verse number 15. Let's read this out loud together. Do not steal. Do not steal or thou shalt not steal. Could three words sit any heavier on us, right? Many of you may be sitting there thinking, well, it's not really necessarily talking to me. I, I, I don't steal. I don't, I don't, uh, I'm, not a, I'm, not a, I'm not a burglar. I don't mug people on the street. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. But we're going to be looking a little bit more deeply into some of this as well. So let's pray this morning. I never want to begin a sermon without praying for the Holy Spirit's intervention and the Lord's, uh, the Lord's pleasure at what we are doing. So let's pray. Father, we bow in your presence this morning, Lord. We have worshiped you, God. I pray that you've been pleased by our worship, but now as we begin to look into your word, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak to us, that you would show us where conviction uh, should set in, and Lord, also help your law to point us to understanding our great need for you and what a great blessing and privilege it is that we can find forgiveness in Jesus Christ. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. So last week, as we got into talking about adultery, the marriage relationship and how God has formed the sexual intimacy within marriage to live within that boundary and, that, and, and within that, that fireplace illustration that I use, that, um, that it is safe within the bonds of marriage. And outside of that, we get into our trouble and into our, uh, into our destruction. We closed out with the story that I love about the prophet Hosea. Where Hosea took, uh, took a bride who was actually uh, the town prostitute, and he was the prophet of God and married a prostitute. It seemed like to be the most unlikely match and the most unlikely couple that there could be. But what God wanted to do was use through Hosea's life and through his marriage, he wanted to use that as a living object lesson to teach Israel about their spiritual fickle nature. That they were a love God for one minute and then they would run off somewhere else. That spiritually, uh, when it came to following God and when it came to being spiritually faithful to God, they were cheaters. They would run and they would be spiritual adulterers all the time. And a lot of times that explains the way we live our lives as children of God too. I love what it says. Well, I don't love it. It's a kind of a really harsh commentary. But in Hosea chapter 4, verse number 2, it was this commentary on Jewish society. And in his day, this was pretty severe. He said in Hosea 4, verse number 2, he said, Cursing, lying, murder, stealing, adultery, they're all rampant. One act of bloodshed follows another. And what I find interesting is that we see all that happen every time God would graciously forgive and restore Israel. And what we see in the study of the Old Testament and in God's relationship with Old Testament Israel, we don't see that we are Israel. But we do see that God exercises patience, he exercises justice, he exercises forgiveness and unending love on his people. Regardless of whether we are of the nation of Israel or whether we are under the kingdom of God as his children, God loves us infinitely and and unstoppably. He, he loves us and he is willing to forgive. And I think that's one of the greatest messages that we get from the Ten Commandments. Is no matter how many times we feel like we fail, God is always willing to say, in my son, I will forgive you. Through my son, I will forgive you and I will pick you up and I will restore you. He's always willing for us to come back. That's the beauty that I'm hoping we're seeing as we come through these Ten Commandments. 
So in the series we've been looking at, there's so much more to these commandments than just don't do this, avoid this, make sure you do this the right way. There's underlying positive messages too. Eight out of, th- eight out of the ten commandments say don't do this or thou shalt not do this. Refrain from this. There's only two of them that are positive. Remember the Sabbath day and honor your father and your mother. The rest of them are don't do this. So we can look at it and think it's pretty negative. And most of the time we hear negatives, what we think is I want to avoid whatever it says not to do. And that's where we leave it. But these commandments are showing us that not only is there a negative thing that we need to avoid, but also there is something that is implied to us that's positive. So kind of the title of the message this morning is, do not steal, but instead be generous. See, the opposite positive about this, of the negative of don't steal, is be generous. The opposite of stealing would be to give, right? And that is one of the, that is one of the foundational cornerstone pieces of a mark of being a follower of Jesus Christ. That as Jesus was generous, we as his church, we as his followers, should be generous as well. Look at what it says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse number 28. As we move into the New Testament, he says, Let the thief no longer steal. And what Paul is doing, he's talking to believers and he's reminding us that before we were saved, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were enslaved to these notions of stealing and thievery and you think, I was raised better than that. I wasn't raised. I'm not talking about what your hands did. I'm talking about what your heart wants. All of us wanted to steal something. Maybe we refrained from our hands. We had more willpower, we thought. But again, God looks at our hearts, right? And he says, let the thief no longer steal. Instead... Let him do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. So there's an element of honesty and straightforwardness that's involved in that. We're going to be talking about honesty next Sunday. So if you want to go ahead and start making plans to avoid that service next week, you can go ahead um, and do that as well. But this is a picture of how we're to be. We do honest work for honest pay so that we are willing to give when a need arises, when a genuine, virtuous need arises. See, I don't know a lot of thieves who are givers at heart. Do you? Think about the people that are willing to break in your house or rob banks or steal from you or the mugger on the street. He's not stealing. The only one that I ever heard of was Robin Hood, and he was a fictional story. We don't rob from the rich and give the poor. Even at that, the thief is, is still robbing. He's still taking from somebody, right? I've just destroyed Robin Hood for everybody. I guess, again, I'm, I'm after Disney, I guess. So let's look at what the commandment covers, just like we've done all through this series. Let's look at the commandment, what it covers, what God is actually saying to us, and how much it covered from a cultural perspective back in the ancient days and how it relates to us today. First of all, what is stealing? When God says, do not steal, what does he mean? Does he just mean don't go up to a person on the street and stick a gun in their back and say, stick them up and give me your wallet? No, that's not all he's talking about. It includes that, but that's not all he's talking about. Scripturally speaking, the definition that we can look at is stealing is doing the act of taking anything that does not belong to you or accessing it by dishonest means. Stealing is taking anything or accessing anything that doesn't belong to you by dishonest or mischievous means. I mean, there's some obvious examples, right? There's the breaking and entering, holding up a bank, shoving extra Splenda packets into your purse at Starbucks, Now we're starting to step on some toes, right? I don't do this, but they won't let me near the condiment stand at Chick-fil-A anymore. 
You know why you have to go to the counter now like it's some sort of like forbidden substance and ask for some barbecue sauce? It's because Derek Holmes kept taking all the Chick-fil-A sauce when they had it out for everybody to take. They're like, we can't do this anymore. We're going to go under, right? Because I'll be like, man, I, I, I just love this stuff and you can't buy it in stores, so I'm just going to take it. It's still stealing, right? So it is now, now that you know, right? Returning a dress or a tie or a suit or some jeans that you only had to wear once. Pirating your neighbor's wireless internet signal. Making it a double feature by sneaking into a second movie. Okay, we don't, have, we don't get to go to movies anymore, so that one doesn't really matter. Filling up your water bottle with milk at the dining hall or orange juice or, or whatever it is. You know, things that the really bad people do. You know, those other people, they do all those, those, those bad things, right? Those are the things that none of us have ever done. But then there's the more serious and <clears throat> not so obvious examples that a lot of times we try to justify away. And many times culturally we've said, that's not necessarily wrong anymore. See, James said in the book of James chapter 5 verse 4, he said that employers can steal from their employees by not paying them properly for the work that they do. He said in verse number four, he said, look, the pay that you withheld from the workers who mowed your fields and worked in your fields cries out and the outcry of the harvesters has reached the, the ears of the Lord of armies. This is how God describes him, himself to those employers who would cheat their employees. He said, I'm the God of armies, man. I got a whole angel army. You want to go up against me? God's serious about us being honest with our employees. He's serious about us being honest in our business dealings. As an employee, you can steal time from your, employee, from your employers by not putting in the full effort for the hours that you've been paid to work. Maybe you don't go so far as to build a little sleeping nook under your desk so you can get a nap or something like that, but being on non-work-related internet all day is a way of stealing from our employers. An article said that the average 50-person company could save $185,000 annually in lost man hours if they would put filters of, on their network, allowing employees only to access work-related sites. And I know we're in the day of COVID. Most people are living or are working from home a lot today. And what's interesting is they've been starting to do studies to see how much has working from home affected productivity. And the idea was it would have to affect it a lot because a lot of workers are complaining that I've got so many distractions, I just can't get things done in what my normal shift would be. So they find themselves working at all hours of the night. And they're thinking, I just can't seem to get everything done in a day. Here's what they have found as they've studied this. Productivity hasn't gone down. Companies are saying productivity, they haven't really seen a big drop in productivity. But the workers are saying, I see a big drop in productivity. Here's the difference. The distractions at home, the kids doing online school, doing all these things like that are still pulling away from, but they're only pulling the amount of time away from the day that you were sacrificing, wasting time in the office. So now it seems really bad on the employees because now their distractions are not so welcome anymore. Now it's, I have to deal with my kids instead of it being a welcome distraction like that. See, we see productivity begin to wane sometimes when we're not honest. Jesus talked about people who would steal from the government by not properly reporting on their tax forms. Just a friendly reminder that April 15th is not that far off. We can steal from our creditors by scheming for ways to get out of paying our debts. We can steal credit that belongs to other people. When other people deserve the credit for a job well done, Someone mistakenly gives it to us and we say, oh, well, thank you very much, knowing full well that the credit belonged to someone else. We can steal emotionally from people in relationships as well. 
Last week we talked about the sexual relationship in marriage. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it talks about how withholding intimacy for vengeful or petty reasons is stealing from that intimacy in the relationship. We can also steal from our kids by always choosing to stay late at work when we know that we could be home, but it's just more fun to be out and away. We can steal intimacy that belongs to someone else by being emotionally closer to someone who is not our spouse or emotionally close to someone who is someone else's spouse. We also can steal from people by manipulating them through flattery or through promising whatever it takes to close the deal in business or even in a relationship while we have no intention of making good on the promise that we made. We steal from our integrity when we do something like that. Gambling is a form of stealing as well. Well, you may think, well, why is gambling a problem? I mean, it's my money. It's just a form of entertainment, and I'm not, I don't have a gambling problem. So it's just a form of investment and risk. It's no different than investing. Well, I don't tend to think so. And let me explain to you why. Because when you invest, both the person that you are investing in and you as the investor, as it succeeds, both of you will receive mutual benefit from that. But when you gamble, the investment you're making is predicated on the fact that you're hoping that another person fails. And you're wanting to take it from them. And gambling is also never really predicated on an honest work for honest pay. For you to win at gambling is usually taking a risk, making a guess, and leaving it up to happenstance. I remember when my father-in-law, when Pastor Smith used to talk about his days as a pool shark before he, before he was saved. He always told this one story that just tore me up. And you could tell that it tore him up every time he shared it as well about when he lived in northern Kentucky. Every Friday night, he would go to the pool hall, and there was this one guy that would come in. And every single Friday night, he would challenge, he would challenge, he would challenge Pastor Smith to a pool match, and, and they kept putting money on it. And every Friday night, he would clean him out of the paycheck that he just got. And he would take out the cash, and he would give him back just enough money for him to go buy milk for his baby on the way home. Gambling is never predicated on mutual benefit for the people involved. Gambling is predicated on, I want to take from you what is yours. Even within our lottery system, think about the way, think about our lottery system is, is made up. The proceeds of our lottery system in Kentucky is supposed to go to fund education. That sounds wonderful, and it almost makes it sound like going and buying a scratcher ticket or a Powerball ticket is a noble thing to do. But the problem is that for you to win that Powerball jackpot means that the kids have to lose. Somebody's going to win, might as well be you. Remember, that's, that's, the, that's the slogan of, of the Powerball. Well, for you to win, that means that all those millions of dollars that were supposed to go into education or could have been going into education are now coming into your pocket. So it's still a form of stealing. <clears throat> you go in hoping to win. So you go in hoping to take money out of education. We didn't like the gambling thing. Let's go on to the next one, kidnapping. You say, oh, I don't kidnap. That's good. Kidnapping and forced slavery were considered to fall under the framework of stealing as well. In Exodus chapter 21, verse number 16, it says this, Very clearly, whoever kidnaps someone must be put to death, whether he sells him or the person is found in his possession. So a lot of people will say that slavery is something that was condoned or actually used in the Bible and God was okay with it. Here we see very clearly that it was not, it was not allowable. See, kidnapping, trafficking of human beings were considered to be worthy of the death penalty because it deprived another person of their God-given right to be free and not owned by another, but to serve God and God alone. So a lot of people say, well, but why does the Bible not say anything negative about slavery? Here we see that it does, and it's also a matter of cultural interpretation. The form of slavery that we see in our 
English versions of the Bible was actually considered to be an indentured servitude. It was an agreement between the person that would, in, that would enter into that for a time being. It was a contract that was made where instead of money changing hands, land and goods and promises would be made that after you work this amount of time, this would be given to you. An example that we see of that is when Jacob went and he worked for, his, he worked for, uh, for Laban for his wife for seven years and said, you can marry my wife at that point in time. And then all of a sudden, you know, Laban, Laban ripped him off and he married his other daughter off. And he said, okay, another seven years and you can have Rachel there. So we see that Laban was stealing from Jacob in that was dishonest in his business dealings too. But that was the biblical version of slavery. Now, when you got into the New Testament, Jesus and, and, and the writers of the New Testament never said anything about the way the Roman slavery system, never said anything about the good or the evils. He talked about our responsibility to the government in that standpoint. So the Bible does not condone slavery as we've known it in our, in our American history because it was not indentured servitude. It was called chattel slavery where people went over to Africa and went to other continents and kidnapped people against their will, brought them here, gave them nothing and took everything from them and built their own wealth on the backs of other people. That is something the Bible never has, never will, never ever going to happen condone. Always has been, always will be sin. Always has been, always will be thievery. We can also steal from God, right? Although I would not recommend it. In the book of Matthew, we find the story of King Herod. And it was said in scripture that he stole the glory that belonged to God. We are guilty of this many times. When we look for our own good, we look for our own fame, we look for our own power when it all should belong to God, for our glory when it should belong to God. The book of Malachi tells us that when we do not give of our tithe, of our first 10%, we do not give of our offerings it is an act of stealing before God. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 9, it says, You're suffering under a curse, the entire nation of Israel, yet you are still robbing me. He said, Then bring the full tenth in the storehouse so that, you may be, that there may be food in my house and test me in this way. It says again, The Lord of armies, See if I will not begin to open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure. So let's go one further on that. If you're rich and you don't use your riches or your blessings to help other people, God looks at it as stealing as well. In the book of Proverbs, it says, when it is in your power, don't withhold good from the one to whom it belongs. That means if I have an ability to help someone and I have an opportunity and I don't seize that opportunity, in God's eyes, it's stealing. Don't say to your neighbor, go away and come back later. I'll give it to you tomorrow when it is there with you to give that day. We can also steal the gospel from those who have never heard it. In Romans chapter 1, verse 14, Paul talked about his call and his passion for being a missionary. And he said, I am obligated both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, to take the gospel to them. If I have the seed of the gospel that is planted with inside of me, woe unto me if I don't share the gospel with those who need to know it. This is why, as a church, we're getting involved with the Gospel to Every Home initiative. We cannot just move into this community, which we've been in now for almost two years, use up its space, use up its resources, and not invest the greatest truth of the gospel back into the community that we're in. We must be a lighthouse. We have that same obligation that the Apostle Paul did. If we don't, we are stealing the gospel from those who need to hear it. As you can see, three words, do not steal, go a lot further than just don't hold a person up on the street. The question is, why are we so prone to steal? What makes us so prone to this? And some of us may be sitting there thinking, well, I don't do any of that. 
I find it hard to believe that none of us have ever done, never done that or never even thought of doing that. So why are we so prone to it? Why do we have these thieving hearts, if you will? While we may not have thieving hands, we definitely have thieving hearts. Why do we have them? I think we have to go all the way back and first, first place we need to start is idolatry. Just like every other commandment that we've looked at so far in this series, the first place that we have to start is idolatry. It's a matter of what has our heart and what receives our worship. It's a matter of what we are willing and committed to actually serve in our lives. In the first message of the series, we saw that the reason that we break any of these commandments that we see is because in, is because in our hearts we've already broken commandment number one. Have no other gods. Shall worship me and me alone. See, what we steal reveals what our idols are. Because we steal because we crave what we've stolen. If I don't care about it, I'm not going to try to steal. But if I care deeply about it, I will be tempted to let nothing stand in the way of me getting it. And if I can't afford it, if I want it bad enough, what I'm, if my heart is going to eventually lead me to do is I'm going to figure out a way that I can take it. That's what our heart does. See, the reason we steal something is almost always because it's playing the role of God in our lives. And a God we've defined already is anything that you feel like you have to have in order to be happy, safe, and secure. We have a lot of little G gods in our world today. We have a lot of little G gods that I have to have in order to feel happy. I have to have in order to feel safe. I have to have in order so that I might feel secure. A God, little g, is anything that you feel like you need to have more than you need to honor God in your life. And let's be frank, there's some things in our lives that we've looked at and said, in order for me to have this, I'm going to have to do something that's dishonorable to God. And we've chosen, okay, God, I could honor you, but here I need to honor this. We do it all the time. Which the Bible says we do that because our broken, flesh-filled hearts are prone to wander from honoring God. We steal monetary things because money has become our God. We think money is so essential that we can't live without it or be happy without it. So what we do is we'll steal to have it. We'll lie for it. We'll cheat for it. We'll fudge our tax returns. We'll manipulate for it, whatever it takes to get it. When we steal non-monetary things, it's usually for the same reason. When you steal material things, it's because you think you should have what that person has or that it's not fair that they have so much of it or that they, 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 they want me to take it. How many Graceway pins do you have in your purse right now? And I'm just teasing with you. I'm just, those are free to take and advertise out there. That's cool. Take it. I had, I had one pastor friend that put this pin has been stolen from First Baptist Church. I thought that was hilarious. You know, we, we're not going to do that with our pins, okay? If you're going to steal it and bring it, now if you've gotten guilty and you want to return them all, make sure you wipe them down with hand sanitizer before you put, leave them in your chair, Okay. We steal non-monetary things for the same reason. And here's the thing. We oftentimes look at it and say, well, this is a big company. They're not going to matter. It's just like me with my Chick-fil-A addiction, my Chick-fil-A sauce addiction. I'm like, they've made it for me. They want me, but they want me to only take one or two. That's for me to use while I'm in the store, not for me to fill my fridge with and base my grilled chicken with at home, which is so good, by the way. But it's not for that. You see, when you steal credit that belongs to someone else, it's usually because... You crave the attention that the stolen reputation would bring you, and you want that more than you want to honor God. So it started idolatry. It's either money is our God or we are our God. One of the two. The second thing we have to understand about why we are prone to steal is because our flesh will never be satisfied with just God. Our spirits will be, 
But our flesh, the moment we're born, begins screaming, feed me, feed me, feed me, feed me. And it's very hard for us to hear the voice of the Spirit saying, give me God, give me God, give me God. So that, that, that screaming, feed me, feed me, feed me, we often give in to that. Our flesh will never be satisfied with God. Our flesh desires money because our flesh is con- convinced that it can provide more of what we really want. Our stuff, our security, our pleasure, avenues in life, opening opportunities of things that we can do. All of those things become more important to us than God. Our heart says, in Christ alone my hope is found. But our flesh says, in money, in stuff, in things, in power, in, in getting a lot of likes on YouTube and TikTok and Twitter and all of those things. But what the Bible says is, in me, your hope is found, in Jesus Christ. Our flesh desires things because it's convinced that by having all those things that we want is way more satisfying than having God who supplies all of our need according to his riches and glory. Our flesh desires credit and glory because it wants the glory that God is really only worthy of in this world. This is what drove Adam and Eve to eat of the fruit. One of the reasons he said, look, Satan said, look, he only doesn't want you to eat of this fruit because he knows the minute you do, you're going to be like him. And all of a sudden that sounded really, really good to Adam and Eve. And before we get in, get, start getting real mad at great, 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 great grandpappy and great grandmammy, we do the same thing. The same thing. Our flesh desires credit and glory because it only wants the glory that God is really worthy of. Reminds me of an old song by Audio Adrenaline that says, you're never going to be as big as Jesus. Why in the world do we continue to try to prove that we are? Life is better off lived realizing he's one and we're two or three or wherever he wants to put us, wherever he designed us to be. That's the best. See, our mortal flesh, which is dead in trespasses and sins, will never be satisfied with the life-giving eternal supply that only comes from God. And the reason that many of us don't know this is because we've become so fattened by feeding off the flesh that it feels foreign when we begin to feed off the Spirit. We become so malnourished from the Spirit that we only know to crave what the flesh offers. And that's why the third reason that we steal is because we're driven by consumption. We're driven by consumption. See, since our flesh can never be satisfied with the riches that God gives, we'll be forever locked in an endless quest for more. Just give me more, just give me more, 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 more money, more wealth, more security, more romance, more entertainment, more credit and praise and affirmation. We consume it like a competitive eater eats hot dogs on the 4th of July. Just give me more. We crave and we get and we crave and we get and it's this never-ending cycle and if something or someone stands in the way of what we're wanting, then all that means is we got to find a way to get it from them. Or to get past them. Because the only way for a consumer to be happy is to keep consuming. It's like a shark. If a shark ever stops swimming, he dies. If a consumer ever stops consuming, they have no reason for existence anymore. And folks, I realize, and I'm very happy and I'm very thankful and proud and grateful to God that God chose to have me born in the United States of America. But we live in a country that is consumed by consumption. It's become our God. It's become our God to some, in some ways that we have this thing called the prosperity gospel that swims around all over the place through churches everywhere where the church thinks the only way that God is good is if he gives me everything to consume. 
That's not the gospel. It's just not. And see, what it does is that false gospel appeals to our thieving hearts. And so we flock to that and we think, man, this is a gospel that I can make something of. A God that goes to work for me to give me what I want. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is, here is my life, Lord. Take it and let it be consecrated more to thee. Not getting from God what I can, giving to him all I have. And he turns it into everything for his glory. See, this is how we are all thieves at heart. And it's the way that we would think it just is and the way that it should be. And it's the only thing that we know living in the modern day culture that we do in the United States of America. Except there's this book here, this nagging little book that gets in the way of everything that our sinful heart wants. And it says that true satisfaction will never come from consumption. That it will only be found in being consumed by God. It will only be found in being consumed by God. So our lives are driven by consumption because we're not satisfied with him. But it doesn't have to be this way. So as we close out this morning, this last, this last section, we're going to go over a couple of Bible story illustrations out of this section is, how do I change my thieving ways? If my heart is so prone to steal, how do I change my thieving ways? Scripture gives us some really beautiful examples of how being consumed with God's spirit will transform us from thieves into generous con conduits of his grace. Over in the book of Luke, chapter 19, we see the story of Zacchaeus. What do we know about Zacchaeus? He was a wee little man and a wee little man was he, right? What did he do? Climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see, right? And, and then who came walking by? As the Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree and he said, Zacchaeus, what? You come down from going to your house today, man. That, man, that was the rockinest Sunday school song because it had the awesomest motions and, and everything. I, I loved Zacchaeus, right? Our children's pastor one day got it confused with Nehemiah and called him Nehemiah. <laughs> We've corrected that now, all right? Zacchaeus, the reason Zacchaeus is, it's a cute story for us, but it wasn't so cute when it happened back then because Zacchaeus was a tax collector. Not only was he a tax collector, he was the chief tax collector in that city. Now, for a tax collector, here's what happened. When Rome would come in and they would, they would conquer lands, and that's what they did as they grew their empire. They conquered, they conquered the Jewish lands, and when they would conquer, they would come in and they would find somebody that was willing to sell out to them because what they would do is they would come in and they would raise taxes on people and they would tax them, they would tax them senseless, man. They would bleed them dry, taking all their wealth. Well, Zacchaeus happened to be living in Jericho, which was the wealthiest of the Jewish regions in that area. And so instead of getting a Roman soldier to come in and collect the taxes, they'd find somebody who knew where the wealth was. It was easier for them to get more money and extract more money that way. So they'd find an insider. How do you think that went over with the rest of the people in Jericho? That one of their own all of a sudden sells out to the, to the oppressor and is going house to house with Roman guards and shaking them down for money. Not only did the tax collectors do this for Rome, but then they would also take their cut. They would take their commission. Rome would say, I want this. The tax collector would tell them, well, but the, Rome would say, oh, we want 30%. Well, the tax collector would say, Rome wants 40%. So he'd give Rome the 30% and he'd keep the 10% for himself. So they were not only selling out to the oppressor, but they were also oppressing their own people because of their own greed. This is how Zacchaeus lived his life. This is how Zacchaeus uh, got his wealth. You see, when you became a tax collector, you knew that you would never have any Jewish friends anymore. 
People that he went to high school with, even his own family members rejected him because to become a tax collector was the ultimate, ultimate act of cultural treason to people within the Jewish culture. So to choose this life meant that money was your idol. All of it for Zacchaeus, trading all that in was worth it to him because it meant money. I don't have to have friends. I don't have to have family because I got all of I got all these bills lined up. I got some Julius Caesars and some Caesar Augustuses, and I got all these things. I got $100. I got $1,000. I got a million dollars. He had all of his money to keep him company. He didn't need anybody else in his life. See, this is why I don't think that Zacchaeus necessarily just climbs up in the tree when Jesus comes walking by because he was short. Because if you've ever been in a crowd of people, the people you don't mind standing in front of you are the short people, right? Because you can see straight over them. I don't mind if kids stand in front of me at a parade. But you let a six foot tall person stand in front of me. And I'm like, man, I want to see, I want to see, I want to see the float go by. No, he was up in the tree because he was trying to stay away from the crowd because he knew how much he was hated. And so what happens? We know the song, Jesus comes walking by and he sees Zacchaeus out of the whole crowd. And he walks over to Zacchaeus. And this is where it was very culturally unacceptable for what Jesus did. When Jesus says, come down because it's necessary for me to go to your house, it really offended everybody there. See, Zacchaeus, you have to ask ourselves, why did Zacchaeus want to go to Jesus to begin with? He didn't have a financial crisis. There's no evidence that there was a health problem. I don't think that he was going to Jesus and say, hey, could you make me taller because I want to play on Jericho's basketball team? I don't think that's what it was about. Here's why I think, Jer here's why I think when Jesus came... Zacchaeus went running was because he was sick and tired of living the empty life serving the God of money. <clears throat> he wanted something that Jesus, only Jesus, could provide. He wanted his thieving heart to be changed. And so he went to the one who he know or he knew could change his life. And so how does Jesus enter his life? Look at verse number 5 of Luke chapter 19. It says, when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down because today it is necessary for me to stay at your house. Now, this is a huge deal for Jesus to walk over to the chief tax collector and say, I want to go to your house. It's like everybody just went in the crowd because that was not done. See, for a person to go to a person's house was the ultimate act of intimacy and fellowship in the Jewish culture. No one wanted to go eat at Zacchaeus' house. And why would the Son of God? We actually see what happens <coughs> in verse number 7. It says, all who, all who saw it began to complain. He's going to stay with a sinful man. And here Jesus is showing us the difference between the gospel and religion. See, religion makes all these cultural rules and says, follow these preferences. But the gospel says, I will come to you. I will come to you when you need me the most. See, in verses 5 and 6, Jesus goes and he eats with Zacchaeus. In 7, everyone gets offended. In verses 8 and 9, Zacchaeus begins to clean up his life. See, if this was just about religion, Jesus would have told Zacchaeus, you want to live a better life? You want to stop being, being run by money? Then stop. Go do this. Go seek out this and everything will be better. Jesus didn't say, Zacchaeus, go to this. Jesus says, Zacchaeus, I've come to you. Because that's what teaches us about the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are not a list of things that we follow to get closer to God. Those, the Ten Commandments are things that we can only follow when we are with God. 
Salvation is not something that Zacchaeus could acquire on his own because if he could have acquired it on his own, he would have acquired it the way he'd acquired everything else in his life. By cheating, by thieving, by stealing, by manipulating. This was something he knew that he could not steal because it was something that was given. You can't steal what is given away. We can't steal salvation. Jesus couldn't manipulate his salvation. He took what was freely given to him. And the change that happens when it happened is beautiful. In verse number eight, Zacchaeus stood there and said, Lord, look, I'll give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've extorted anything from everyone, and he said, if I've done it, he knows that he's done it. I will give back four times as much. This is massive. He gives back fourfold of everything that he stole. He did that not because Jesus said, this is what you have to do to be saved. He did this because Jesus said today, you are saved. When we know Christ, it produces a heart change. Our thieving ways are changed when we come to Jesus. That's not the only tax collector that met Jesus. Matthew, one of his disciples, met Jesus. The Bible says that when he was walking along the way, he called out to Matthew as he was at the tax collection tables, and he said, come follow me. And the Bible says, immediately Matthew got up. And he followed Jesus and he never looked back. Why? Because Matthew had the same heart that, that Zacchaeus did. He was sick and tired of serving a false god. He was sick and tired of being a slave to the terrible master of money. And he knew a good master when he saw one and he ran to Jesus. The thief on the cross was saved as he was on the cross. A whole life of stealing, a life of criminal activity and one moment with Jesus on the cross. And he spends an eternity with Jesus in heaven. So here's the big idea. We change our thieving ways by embracing the grace of Jesus that has already embraced us. <clears throat> Zacchaeus, when he went to that tree, he went to that tree and didn't convince Jesus to embrace him. He went to that tree. Jesus had already embraced him. When Jesus went to the cross for us, he already embraced you. He already embraced me. We change when we embrace his grace. Are we thieves? Yeah. But is there hope for thieves? Ask the thief on the cross. Ask Zacchaeus. Ask Matthew. Ask anyone else who ever had a thieving thought that was changed by Jesus Christ. Did they get grace from Jesus, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords? They did. They would have received grace from no one else. Everyone else would have hated them, but they received it from Jesus. <clears throat> and when they embraced the grace of Jesus that could not be cheated, manipulated, or grabbed, it changed them forever. See, because here's what we have to get and never let go of, is that grace answers all the reasons that we would ever want to steal. Grace has an excuse for all the excuses we would give for ever wanting to steal. Maybe you steal because you feel like you have to have money in order to secure your future. Maybe you don't steal, but your need for security drives you to be stingy <coughs> and not be generous to those who have need, to clinch up whenever the offering plate passes or whenever we talk about how you can give online or give at the collection box. Maybe you have a plan with your stinginess. Maybe you're saying, I have to be stingy now. I have to do these thieving things now so that I can build up something so that I can be generous later on. Ask most people who have that plan. They never get to that, that, that imaginary point of generosity. Some people steal just for the rush and the challenge of doing it, like Ocean's Eleven or The Italian Job or, or some of those movies where we rob banks or something like that. 
Or they'll steal to exact justice on other thieves who they think are worse thieves than they are. <clears throat> In all of these instances, the only, way to, is to, the only way to come to a place of victory is to come to a place of total focus on the generosity of the cross. That's the only way. Because when we look at the generosity of Jesus, who did not need to give us a plug nickel, he gave us the kingdom. He gave us the kingdom. He gave us the keys to the kingdom. So when you look at the cross, all of our excuses for stinginess melt away. All of our fear for the future melts away. The cross screams security. Jesus covered our debt. He covered a debt that we could never get enough to pay off. The cross screams extravagant love and extravagant grace that we will never be able to give more than God gave for us at the cross. And it tells us that the greatest rush for Jesus was not when he took, but when he gave himself at the cross. Here's what Hebrews chapter 12 tells us what was on Jesus' mind when he was on the cross. It says, For us to keep our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer, the author, and the finisher of our faith, for the joy that laid before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now set down at the right hand of the throne of God. When Jesus gave himself on the cross, it was the greatest rush, because it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. It is way more blessed to give than it is to take. There was a rush of joy for Jesus when he gave himself for us. If you think you get a rush from stealing, try giving and see what kind of rush you get. As we close out, there's one more story I kind of, I, I, I want to share with us this morning. You see, the eighth commandment points to generosity. And it's only possible when we possess the grace of God. <clears throat> there's a quote by Tim Keller that I found this week as I was studying. I love this. It says, you have not stopped being a thief in God's eyes when you stop taking. You stop being a thief when you start giving. Because to whom much is given, much is required, right? Not one of us, if we name the name of Jesus Christ, can say that we have not been given anything. Because if we've been given grace, we've been given more than we will ever deserve more than we could have ever gotten any other way. You can steal everything in the world. You won't be able to steal eternal life. It's something that's freely given. And you have to just ask for it. I love the story of the Good Samaritan. A lot of times when we <clears throat> look at the story of the Good Samaritan, we, we look scornfully at the people that walked on by, the guy that got beaten up. And this was an act of highway robbery, literally highway robbery. Guy was traveling on this road and he was beaten and he was stripped naked. Everything was taken from him and he was left for dead. And he would have died because there were three different people that walked past him. There were some of them that saw him and walked on the other side of the road because they didn't want to be bothered with it. But then there was this one Samaritan guy. The one guy that nobody would have ever expected to do it was the one who came and helped him. He ran to him. He picked him up. He took him into town. He found a hotel. He nursed his wounds. He gave him the clothes off of his back to, to cover his nakedness. He left the next day to continue on his journey. But before he did, he stopped down at the front desk of the office and he gave him whatever it was. And he says, listen, open a tab for this guy. Whatever he needs to get better, however long he needs to stay to get better, let him do it and I will cover it when I come back. This man who knew nothing but abuse of thievery now knew the grace of someone who was willing to openly give everything that was required. In that we see this beautiful picture of the gospel, don't we? Because each one of us are that man on the side of the road. 
Each one of us were that way. And in Jesus Christ's love for us as the good Samaritan, he comes, he picks us up, he nurses us back to health. He takes the broken things and puts them together. He raises us from death to life and he covers the cost of all of it. He looked at the cross and saw it. Many people would look at it and say, it's a price that I'm not willing to pay. But Jesus said, if that's what's required, that's what I will pay. You see, we don't stop our thieving ways by just not taking. We stop our thieving by turning into the mind of Jesus Christ and becoming generous givers like Jesus. I wonder though, how many of us would be the three that walked on by? Because when they walked on by, they didn't just protect themselves, they stole from this man. They stole his dignity. They stole his humanity being like, because when they walked on by, it was basically them saying, just go ahead and die, man. This is what we do when we withhold the gospel. It's what we do when we lie and we cheat and we steal. We're stealing from others. We're stealing from our own integrity. We're stealing from the name of Jesus Christ. But thankfully, we have a Savior who can change all of it. It changes when we embrace the grace of God. So as we bow our head and we close our eyes this morning, I just have a couple of questions to ask you. What do you think the relationship between that guy and the Samaritan became after that. You think when they met back up after he came back through, the guy just looked at him and said, man, why did you do that for me? Maybe he asked because he wanted to know why, but I would say they probably became friends later on. Do you think that guy, or he could have taken another road. He could have just said, you know what, here comes, here comes my sugar daddy. Here comes the guy who gives me, they could have just kept, continued to try to take advantage of him. That's a question that we have to ask us this morning. What is my relationship with Jesus Christ once I've embraced his grace? The first question is, have you embraced his grace? It's already embraced you. It's there for the taking. He's like, you don't have to do anything. Stop scheming, stop manipulating, stop trying to prove, stop trying to convince me that you're worth it because you're not, but I'm freely going to give you my grace anyway. Just ask. Have you embraced his grace? Have you asked? Have you been Zacchaeus in the tree yet? Have you been Matthew at the table yet? Have you, you just get up and come. That's what he wants. If you don't know Christ today, that's the challenge. Will you come to him? Will you embrace the grace that has already embraced you? But those who know Christ, that grace is embracing you and you've been given more than you'll ever deserve. Why do we continue to live like we don't get what we need? Why do we continue to live looking at God like he's withholding something or like he's done something to us that, that we don't, that, we, that he should have never done? Listen, God is good. He is all the time good. He has embraced us with his grace. And when we begin to keep our eyes on his grace, it begins to change that perspective. And the question as we close out as well is, have you been stealing from anyone? Seeing what stealing all in, in covers have you been stealing from anyone? Have you had the desire, should, that man, if I could get away with it, I would do it? That means in our heart that we have. What about from God? Are we stealing from God? And tithe and offerings, are we trying to steal his glory by the way we live our lives only for us? As we saw this morning, our thieving hearts lead to way more than we want to admit. But thankfully, Jesus offers grace freely, even to thieves. Thank you for listening today. At Graceway, our strongest desire is to glorify Christ by telling everyone about His grace. If you have questions or are in need of spiritual help, 
please reach out to us by visiting www.gracewaylex.org and click on the Contact Us section. Or you can email us at gracewaylex at gmail.com. Our worship services are held each Sunday at 1030 a.m. We'd love to worship with you this week. Until next time, take care and walk in the way of grace.